0: Let's pray together. God, we thank you for a new year. We thank you for breath in our lungs and the gift of life. We thank you that in your grace and in your wisdom, you've seen fit to make us in your image and to give us life. And we rejoice in that. We thank you for that. We thank you for the last year that we had, and we thank you for this coming year uh, whatever joys or challenges that come, we thank you for the truth that Nick was encouraging us with, that you you walk with us through those things, and we praise you for that. What God is like our God who chooses to be so near, and we give you praise for your nearness. And Lord, I, I ask that as uh, we look at Genesis 50 today, that you would help me speak what is true. I pray that As people listen and hear these words, that you would speak to them, that it would be your spirit that ministers to them. Um, Lord, I I just ask that you would come and fill this time, and let it be a blessing and a benefit to your people, and let it be glorifying to your name. Amen. Uh, Like I said, we're going to be in Genesis 50. Today, we're going to conclude our study of the book of Genesis, um, which may be my... uh, my timing was, was poor because I think there's only like half of our church here, so I guess the other half will just have to catch up on the video online, but I'm glad you're here with us as we finish this up, and by God's grace, I'll be able to tie up some of the threads, the big themes that have gone with us through Genesis uh, from the very beginning when we started more than a year ago. And we'll take one last look at these themes this morning. So read with me. We're going to read all of chapter 50 together. It says, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. It's been a while since we were looking at this. So Joseph's father, Jacob, has just died. And Joseph is distraught. Verse 2, And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel, another name for Jacob. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die, In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians." Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus the sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So this chapter really unfolds in three different scenes. If you're using the ESV version that I use, then it's laid out there pretty simply for you with the different section headings. First, you've got verses 1 through 14, where you have the embalming and burial of Jacob, followed by this really incredible parade from Egypt all the way up to Israel or the land of Canaan and then back home. And the description there is really detailed and it's a rather impressive ceremony. Uh, But this is, I think, kind of a weird way to spend so many verses at the very end of the book of Genesis, isn't it? So we're going to have to spend some time thinking about that. We'll do that. The second scene, though, in the chapter is the conversation between Joseph and his brothers that unfolds in verses 15 to 21. The brothers fear that now that their father Jacob is dead, he's out of the picture. Joseph is finally going to take advantage of this opportunity to get revenge on his brothers. As if he's been plotting the demise of these men for the last 17 years, just waiting for his father to die so that now he can get this revenge, he can finish them off. And instead, what we find is that Joseph very humbly offers to his brothers incredible grace and forgiveness. And then in verse 20, he gives us an amazing statement at the end of the book of Genesis. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good that's going to require some of our reflection today as well but first the final scene of the chapter indeed the final scene of the whole book of genesis is recorded in verses 22 to verses 26 or verse 26 and it's the death of joseph himself and again there's this emphasis on joseph being buried not in egypt just like his father jacob but rather that his burial will eventually take place in the land of canaan the land that God swore to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. So let's start off with the theme of death. That's a pleasant way to begin the new year, isn't it? Most of the verses of this chapter deal with this theme. One of my favorite poets is a man named John Donne. Maybe you've heard of him. He's got a famous poem that, at least back in the day, most people would read in um, high school. It's called, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and the poem is a short reflection on death, and it ends like this, for I am involved in mankind, therefore send not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. The imagery comes from older days when, in small towns, when someone would die, the church bells would ring to announce the death in the village. And the poem is a very stark reminder. One day, the announcement will be for your death. One day, the bell will toll for you. You are involved in mankind. And therefore, the end of your story will be death as well. And so the fact that Genesis ends on the theme of death, I think is actually quite fitting, even though it's also tragic. That's how every human story ends. But the death of Jacob and the death of Joseph that we find recorded here, it's not without hope. Another central theme in the book of Genesis from the early chapters has been this promise that God made to his chosen man, Abraham, that one day God will make Abraham a great nation and God will give him a land to call his own, an inheritance that will be for him and his progeny after him. And the book of Genesis doesn't record for us the fullness of how that promise is ultimately fulfilled. That's a fulfillment that's going to require the rest of the Bible, in fact, in many ways, the rest of human history to understand how the fullness of that comes to be accounted for. But the end of Genesis here does foreshadow the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Remember, Jacob was given a new name by God. He was given the name Israel. And his children would become 12 tribes a great nation that would be called by that same name, the nation of Israel. And after his death, the children of Jacob uh, would car- I'm, I'm sorry, the children of Jacob carry him up to Egypt now, but after his death, the children of Joseph will carry him up, and Jacob will be buried in this tomb that Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite, and Joseph will eventually be buried there as well. And in these verses, we're being told by the Spirit of God that one day this promise that was made to Abraham will be fulfilled exactly as God said it would. Just as the man called Israel found a home for his bones in the land of Canaan, in the final resting place in that promised land, so too shall his children one day possess that same land as their own. And if we, were continue, if we were to continue to read our Bibles through Exodus and beyond that, ultimately to the book of Joshua, then we would see God's promise fulfilled to Abraham over the course of many generations. And so it's fitting for Genesis to end with the burial of Jacob in the land of Canaan, because that points us forward in the story to God's promises fulfilled, his purposes succeeding in exactly the way that he intended. It's a reminder that every word of God proves true and our God is indeed faithful. But probably the most significant reason why the last chapter of Genesis puts so much emphasis on the reflection on death, I think is to remind us about the moment when tragedy entered the story way back almost at the very beginning of Genesis. I know it was more than a year ago now that we looked at that, but hopefully you remember those early chapters in Genesis. We began in the beginning with God, the giver of life, who spoke the universe into existence by the word of his power, God who was eternally existent, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever in the past. And God then for his own glory made the universe and created within it man, giving life to Adam and Eve. The text told us that Adam was wonderfully made from the very dust of the earth and God breathed the breath of life into him. And then from the rib of the man, God made the woman so that the two were of one flesh. And God gave them dominion over all of the earth, and he said, it's yours. But he gave them only one prohibition, that they must not eat from the tree of the garden that God called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said that in the day that they ate of that tree, they would surely die. And we know how the story goes. The tragedy of all tragedies took place. When Eve was tempted by the serpent, she believed his lie, forsaking her trust in the goodness and wisdom of God. She rebelled and she ate that fruit and she gave some to her husband, Adam, who was with her. And through their rebellion, all of God's good creation was plunged into the madness of evil and sin. And we're told in Genesis chapter 3 that God came looking for the man and the woman and he found them hiding in their shame. And it's recorded for us, God said to the man, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Do you hear the distant bell tolling for you, Adam? It tolls for you And it signals the arrival of death. And from the moment of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, death became a shadow hanging over all of human life, all of human history, all of the rest of Scripture. The echo of the bell, I think, can be heard faintly in all of our minds. Can't it? Doesn't in some ways New Year's remind you that the clock is ticking and the time is coming, it's a little bit closer. One day it will toll for you as it did for Adam and Eve and Jacob and Joseph. And so Genesis ends with death because death reigns Over all of the creation that God has made. And this is not just my idea. This is a theme that the New Testament picks up on. Romans chapter 5 verse 17 tells us that because of one man's sin, Adam, death reigned through that one man. And so because death is how every life must end, we've come to think it's natural. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible says that death is not natural. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 26 says that death is our enemy. And it promises that one day the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. In this very good creation that God made in Genesis chapter 1, death was not part of what God made very good. And so although Genesis ends with the death of Jacob, we're given this really detailed scene of grief and sadness, 70 days of weeping and mourning over the tragedy of death, because death is evil. So a book that began with the glory of life now ends with the tragedy of death. But Genesis is not an independent book. It's just one chapter in the whole biblical story. And we know how that story ultimately ends. The Bible will go on to tell a greater story, not a story where death triumphs, but a story where new life triumphs through Jesus Christ, who accomplishes the death of death at the cross. Let's look at the second section of Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21. In particular, let's look at verse 20. I actually encourage you to memorize this verse. At least this part. What God or what you meant for evil, God meant for good. There's a New Year's resolution for you. Memorize Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. The section, though, begins with Joseph's brothers in fear. They say to one another, Joseph will probably hate us for the evil that we've done to him. He may seek to pay us back for the wickedness that we did. Now, originally, if you remember, the evil that they intended to do to him was murder. But then they changed the plan and sold him into slavery instead. And he was ripped from his father and his family His life was essentially taken from him. He lost many years in prison. His freedom and his identity were stolen. But eventually, by God's faithfulness, this man, Joseph, rose to power in Egypt. And now Joseph is in the place where he has the power to repay his brothers for the evil that they did to him with no consequences. He could easily have them killed. He could make them suffer the evil of death And this is why they fear him. And yet when his brothers come to Joseph, he says the most incredible thing. First, in verse 19, he says to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Now it helps to understand the Egyptian cosmology to really get a view of how humble this statement is. As far as the Egyptians are concerned, Joseph basically is a god. The Egyptians believed that their pharaohs and their rulers were semi-gods, demigods. And so Joseph has basically been hearing for something like the last 30 years that he's just a half step lower than God. Pharaoh is a god in the eyes of the Egyptian, and Joseph saved Pharaoh and his land, and therefore Joseph himself Must be something close to deity. All those years of hearing just how awesome he is, and Joseph remains humble enough to understand that he does not have the wisdom or the power or the foresight of God himself. But verse 20 is better still. Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. As they are today. We need to think about these words for a couple of minutes. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Two things that I want to make perfectly clear here. First, I want you to understand that both halves of this statement are talking about evil. Now, I looked at a couple of different translations. I mentioned I'm reading from the ESV, but just about every translation here says something like, you purposed it for evil, God purposed it for good. Purpose or meaning is the intention. But the word it in the second phrase, God meant it for good. That's a pronoun, a pronoun is a word that stands in for another word, and so we should ask what word is it standing in for? What does the it refer to here? In the Hebrew, this pronoun is, uh, it agrees with the word evil in person, gender, and number, which is to say that it's standing in the place for the word evil. So we could read this phrase like this. You meant evil against me, but God meant your evil for good. Man, my friends, do you see how profound that statement is? Think about the evil that you have experienced in your life and what these words mean concerning that evil. And this is not just the musing of Joseph here. This is recorded for us in God's word so that God himself might teach us something about his character, his nature, his power, his plans. As a pastor, how often have I been asked the question, Grady, I just don't understand why God would make me suffer through this evil. Grady, I just can't make any sense of the pain that I'm experiencing? And the answer is always and everywhere the same. The evil that you are suffering through, God is at work in the midst of that evil to bring about your good. Do you believe that? Do you really, really believe that? Because if you do, it will change your life. That God means to do good to you through the evil that you suffer through. That's what the Bible teaches us. And we should believe it and we should trust it just like Joseph did. This is why Joseph is an incredible man, because he knew this, not as an idea, but as a fact that set the trajectory of his life. But it gets even more intense if we think about it a little bit more. Because Joseph does not say, God used your evil for good. Stick with me on this. As if God were powerless to stop them from doing evil. But things worked out, you know, because God's like this really good puppet master. And he just kind of pulled the right strings in the right places. And in the end, there was like, aha, and the trick worked out. That's not what Joseph says. Joseph does not say God used your evil for good. What does he say? God meant your evil for good. You know, people often struggle with a question. Does God allow bad things to happen to us? Or does God cause bad things to happen to us. And in a way, I think Joseph's words here answer the question for us. He says that God meant the evil that the brothers did for Joseph's good and for the good of many people. Now friends, I admit here that we are moving into doctrine that is difficult. This is not easy stuff. This can be a difficult pill to swallow, and it can certainly be a mind-bender how this works. But I would say that a right view of God hangs in the balance on this point. It is not a minor point of theology. It is a major point of theology. It's not merely a right view of God according to what the Bible teaches, although that is true, This is also a glorious and exalted view of our God, a God who has a plan and a purpose for everything, a God who is mighty, a God who is so powerful that even evil bends to his purposes and his will so that he might make from it good. A God who is not surprised by anything, but who decrees everything for his purposes because he knows the beginning from the end and he intended it from before the foundations of the world. God is not in heaven reacting to the actions of mankind, smoothing over the mess that we make. God has already decreed the beginning from the end. Genesis did not end up here because God was piecing together some response along the way. That's not why we get to chapter 50. This is exactly how God intended this book to end. From the moment that he said, let there be light. From before the foundations of the world, God arranged every chapter of the story. From before he spoke the first word of creation, God planned for Jacob and Joseph to die, not in Canaan, but in Egypt, and for Jesus Christ to die in your place on the cross as the Son of God. And all the events that unfold in history are part of God's plans. He even works the evil of death for his good purposes and our good because he loves us. Now this becomes a difficult doctrine for two reasons and maybe you're already squirming in your seat because you know what these difficulties are. It's difficult first because it might make you wonder whether you have responsibility or choice in the matter, right? Here's the debate, well if God is sovereign like this then what does that mean for my free will? The biblical answer to the question is you are responsible for yourself. You are responsible for your actions. It's right here in verse 20. We are told that the brothers had their purpose. Their purpose was to do evil. They acted. They made choices. And with their actions, they meant evil and they accomplished evil. Just because God planned good for their evil does not mean they are absolved of it as if it's not their fault, as if they did not make a real and meaningful choice. Nor does it mean, because God intended good, that they shouldn't have made a different or a better choice. They should have. They should have made a choice where they didn't do evil. Do you remember back to Genesis chapter 4? After the tragedy of the fall, You get the story of Cain and Abel. And what does God say to Cain who's jealous of his brother Abel? He says, sin is crouching at your door and you must master it. Do not be deceived. Just because God intends to work evil for good does not mean that we can blame God for the evil that we do nor does it mean that we do not have real and meaningful choices in life. And I don't know how to explain this to you any further. You know, reflecting on this, I'm like, man, God, if only I was a little bit more intelligent, maybe I could explain it to people. I don't. All I can say is this is what the Bible teaches. People do evil by their own choice, and God in his perfect justice will judge that evil. And yet all the evil that man does... God will work it for good. God intends it for good. Now maybe you're more intelligent than me, but to my puny mind, it doesn't make sense. But God in his infinite wisdom has told us in his word, this is how it is. And he's told us that we should do good and not evil. But the other difficulty with the doctrine is that we wonder, well, is God really good? You meant this for evil. God meant it for good. Is God really good? If God takes the evil that the brothers intended to do to Joseph and he uses it for good, is God then somehow in some way responsible for the evil? If God uses evil for his plans... Does that mean God does evil in accomplishing his plans? And again, the Bible answers us and says, no, no. Have confidence, my friends. Our God is good. All the works of God are right and his ways are just, says Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. God is good and he does good, says Psalm 119, verse 68. God only does good, and God uses the evil that men do for good, as a tool for his purposes. The only illustration I could think of that even kind of communicates this, and I'm not sure it works, but I'll try it anyway, is maybe like a scalpel in the hands of a violent man. A man with evil intention in his heart picks up a scalpel and with it he attacks in order to do harm, to kill or to maim. He cuts his victim in evil with that scalpel. But God uses that very same cut through which to operate. An opening through which he can remove a cancerous tumor. His intention is to bless and to heal with the same wound that was done with evil. And so in this illustration, God intends the cut to remove the illness, although it was the man who made the cut with evil in his heart. And again, I can't offer you any further insight on this. I really don't understand it myself. Men much smarter than me have tried to figure it out. I've read some of their books and all we can say is there's a mystery here. I can only tell you what Joseph says in verse 20. What the world intends for evil, God means that for good. And God will succeed in his purpose in working it for good. What a beautiful mystery. So full of optimism, so full of hope, so full of rejoicing. Whatever difficulty that we're going through, whatever that wound that pain that scar is for each one of us differently individually yes yes god is working that for good and he means it for your good the evil you have suffered and you are suffering and you will suffering you will suffer that is god's will for your good and this is a very fitting way for the book of Genesis to end because it looks backwards to Adam and Eve and it puts their sin in perspective. Have you ever wished, like me, that you could just travel back in time to be with Adam and Eve in the garden and be like, hold on a second, before you grab that fruit, let me just explain something to you, okay? You're about to make my life miserable. You're about to make the lives of all the billions of other people that come after you miserable. Can we just sit down and have a conversation about this? Or maybe you wouldn't even try and explain. Maybe you just slap that thing out of Eve's hand and say, don't you dare. Well, guess who had the power to stop that before it started? God did. God could have slapped that thing out of her hand. God could have set the tree on fire like the burning bush. He could have turned the serpent into a piece of fruit. So think about it. What Adam and Eve meant for evil, God meant for good from the beginning. What Adam and Eve intended as rebellion against God so that they might ascend into enlightenment and be like God, the serpent lied to them. That action of theirs that brought the whole human race into tragedy and suffering and sin and misery and death. God didn't stop it. He meant it for good, from before the foundations of the world. Now they did it. It was their action. It was their evil intention. But God had other plans to use it for good. And it's fitting that Genesis would end with this, with Joseph telling telling us this, because it's going to give us hope for something that's going to come much later. That's even more awful. God himself is going to step into this world as a man, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, born to bring the peace of heaven to the chaos of man, born to be God's messenger of love, to reconcile God and man, and man with evil in his heart will nail him to a cross. But what man intends for evil, God intends for good. Turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to wait until I hear all the pages stop flipping because you need to see these verses. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Now, this is recorded after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you see how similar these words are actually to the words that Joseph spoke to his brothers? Men of Israel, you meant evil against God, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people would be kept alive. Here we're told that what man intended through the evil of the cross, God intended for good. This symbol is a symbol of God's intention for good to man. And it symbolizes the awful, brutal evil of the murder of the Son of God. And if God intends the cross for your good, then how much more can he work all the struggles that you go through for his good purposes? Whatever hardship you're presently going through, whatever hardship 2023 might bring your way, God has planned and purposed it from before the foundations of the world to walk with you through those hardships because he loves you. And so we can say at the end of Genesis, God is truly in control of all things. Nick, right on, man. From the breath of life which God gave to people to the moment that God takes that breath of life back, God is in control. From the families to whom God gives children to the nations that rise up from those children, God is in control. From the evil which man devises in his corrupt heart to the goodness of the cross, God's in control. From the tragedy of the fall to the glory of his eternal kingdom, over all of it, God is in control. Christ rules and reigns over everything, even over death. Oh, death, where's your victory? Death, you who reign over human history, where is your sting? Because God used the evil of death to bring about the glory of Christ and the salvation of man. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.